Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon and thank you for joining me once again. This week we're going to be dipping our toes into a pretty new subject to me at least, being cryptozoology. But we're going to start today more specifically with cryptozoology as applied to the search for anomalous primates. So we're talking Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, Skunk Ape, Yowie, Alamasti, etc. So we're going to be looking at the history around the formation of the Bigfoot slash Sasquatch North American community in particular, but with reference to their international colleagues. But this week we're going to start with an overview of the situation before diving into a more granular history next week. So we're going to be asking a few questions along the way. So why do people want to believe in anomalous primates in the first place? And what are their theories for their existence? What does it say about our views of society and our view of what separates humans from the rest of the animal kingdom? What does it say about how we view science and how we view scientists? So the search for anomalous primates has always suffered from the tension between the science establishment and the noble amateur, or more broadly, the tension between science and the scientist. Is there a reason for these noble amateur loners to want to believe in the solitary Bigfoot? So is there a reason behind this yearning to believe in a creature existing on the outskirts of civilization? So do our local anomalous primates say something more general about our worldview? Do they reflect something of the society around them? Has the focus of the hunt for Bigfoot become, in recent years, for example, a more ecological pursuit? This is one of the questions around modern hunting for Bigfoot, whether it's become more a reaction to climate change and environmental destruction, whether it is a narrative that kind of evolves along with our needs for it. And ultimately, we're going to be asking, is the desire to legitimise cryptozoology a doomed one? Can it even be legitimised and retain the character that people like about it? So what kicked this off for me was the episode with Sean from Review It Yourself and Luke from Nerdstalgic, some fellow podcasters, where we talked about Expedition Sasquatch, which is a 2018 documentary by filmmaker and adventurer Justin Chernipesky as he ventures out into the Canadian wilderness in search of the Sasquatch. Filmed on location, as you would expect, in Alberta, Canada, the film focuses on Chernipesky's expedition to a kind of hotspot for Sasquatch accounts. I say hotspot, there really aren't that many hotspots for Sasquatch accounts, but it is an area where there were more reported accounts and it's supported by anecdotes of such sightings by Robert McNeil. So if you're interested in a light-hearted exploration of this documentary, check out the episode on Review It Yourself. There will be more, no doubt, of us watching strange Bigfoot documentaries and talking about them. But the bulk of my knowledge on the formation of the North American Bigfoot community comes from Searching for Sasquatch by Brian Regal, and this focuses on the individuals who fought throughout the years to bring their own brand of legitimacy to the field with varying degrees of success. It is a fascinating read and again it's started me down this rabbit hole and this is going to be a long series because of it. So first things first, what is cryptozoology? 
So cryptozoology, from the Greek for hidden animals, is a term appearing in print for the first time in 1959, and it is the pursuit of studying legendary or mythical animals, with the idea being that some of them may be existing in flesh and blood form, perhaps in very limited numbers. So these creatures may have almost entirely evaded humankind until now, but ultimately they are not unknown. They exist in oral legends, in myth and stories. However, they resist our attempts at categorization, an issue that cryptozoology attempts to correct. The founding fathers of the field are, by general consensus, Scottish naturalist Ivan Sanderson and French zoologist Bernard Houvelmont. So the ISC, the International Society of Cryptozoology, attempted to refine this definition further in their 1982 meeting. They say, what makes an animal of interest to cryptozoology is that it is unexpected. So cryptozoology attempts to bring to scientific light animals of oral account and legend, continuing the somewhat old-fashioned method which nonetheless succeeded in the scientific acknowledgement of giant pandas, of mountain gorillas, etc., Animals which, until their addition to zoological record, may have sounded just as mystical, mythical, strange and unexpected as some of today's cryptids. So famous cryptids include Bigfoot, who we have already mentioned, Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster, the Wendigo, the Bunyip, the list obviously goes on as long as you want to make it, but the main concept of cryptozoology is the idea of animals rare animals that we hear of in legend having the potential to physically exist and therefore be scientifically studied in an organised manner. But in between the scientific and the paranormal has always been a blur in the case of cryptozoology. Many early cryptozoologists term themselves monster hunters and many do to this day, with monster having the Latin origin monstrum and being derived from an early English word meaning portent or prodigy, therefore something unexpected, again that word unexpected, that heralded the coming of a large, potentially terrible event. But as prodigies, things like birth deformities, etc. became re-evaluated in a modern scientific lens as something to be understood and learnt from, Monsters came to be associated solely with the unexplainable and folklore. Many who study cryptozoology take this approach of taking legends and stories, known by many as as scary stories to tell in the dark, and studying them as a botanist would study a predator extant today. So taking what was previously viewed as monstrous and bringing it into the light. So father of cryptozoology, Houvelmont, also manifested in his work and theories a hatred for the ideas of the dictators of science. And this was stemming from his evacuation during World War II. So cryptozoology was established, at least in part, as a reaction to the Nazi crimes of World War II, as an unfettered amateur monster hunter fighting against the dark forces of scientific mainstream conservatism. As implied by this, an exploration of cryptozoology in many of its forms, not just apes, illuminates the changing position of the human in the natural world, 
as we challenge over time the colonising and swashbuckling aspects of early scientific advancement, show shifting away from a position in which the human is the undisputed top of the food chain, in which we go out and take what we want for ourselves. But the aspect we are going to be focusing on specifically today, as you may have gathered, is anomalous primates. That the legendary oral accounts of giant, hairy, man-like apes which date back far into antiquity may represent a multitude of possibilities. We will focus on ape men today as, for a variety of reasons, some of which you can probably guess, they have captured popular attention in a way many other cryptids just haven't. And they occupy a strange position in Regal's explanation where, of most cryptids, they have the biggest biological chance at existence. We feel that, scientifically, they could exist. But do they? That's the question. So the study of anomalous primates began to coalesce into a kind of discipline in the late 40s and early 50s. And the story that arguably started it all off kind of like the report that launched a thousand flying saucers, the Roswell report. But more the report that, you know, stomped a thousand footprints in the mud was the coverage of the famous huge bear footprints which were then cast in plaster and termed off the cuff Bigfoot for their huge size and their human-like print. So discovered in 1958 by Jerry Crew, a bulldozer operator, These prints sparked a huge popular interest. And this interest just peaked again around the mid-60s with the publication of the Patterson-Gimlin film. So filmed by Patterson and his friend Gimlin, in prominent Bigfoot researcher John Green's words, this is the footage that changed everything. Suddenly the image of this ape-like creature with its brief look towards the camera gave an image to the legend of the creature that could be lurking just behind the tree line. It is a piece of footage so famous that I can almost guarantee you will have seen it or reference to it, even if you have no interest in cryptozoology at all. It is a piece of footage that is still highly contested to this day, with it being difficult because of the age of it and the quality of footage to ascertain whether it is real or whether it is real footage of a Bigfoot. There are lots of layers to it. But nonetheless, it is probably the most influential piece of Bigfoot media that exists to this day. But more eyes on the subject did not necessarily mean that those investigating it were any closer to finding the truth. So there was the issue of providing the kind of evidence that the scientific community would accept. So oral accounts, no matter how specific and widespread, are not enough to help define a species or number of species. Hunters of Bigfoot and Sasquatch have repeatedly struggled to provide the kind of evidence that would allow the creatures to be designated and then studied as their own genus, convincing DNA evidence. These researchers, as Regal says, preferred the straightforward, hands-on approach of their field naturalist forebears, rather than theoretical thinking of scientific experts. 
and their attempts to provide such evidence were constantly thwarted by hoaxes. Their hands-on individual approach was specifically vulnerable to hoaxes and to wish fulfillment. There are many accounts of the noble researchers being taken in by hoaxes because they want to believe in it. Cryptozoology has always struggled to find legitimacy and to even find a united front within itself. So like many other countercultural ideas and groups, there are a lot of tensions pulling it in various ways. So you have a distrust of science versus a desire to be seen as legitimate by scientists, this belief in the amateur scientists as untethered from association to a scientific body or university. These tensions are played out in the formation and struggles of the Bigfoot and Sasquatch hunting community, and in one of its most famous and polarising figures, in the life and career of Grover Krantz, who we will focus on in a coming episode. Grover Krantz made all his work, whether consciously or not, an effort to build intellectual, theoretical and physical support for his theory that the Sasquatch descended from Asian fossil primate Gigantopithecus, a theory derived from a suggestion made by Huvelmann. But this is getting more specifically into cryptozoology, so let's go back a little bit to Sasquatch theories and reports and legends around it. So reports and legends around big, hairy humanoids precede the arrival of Europeans to North America. So the reports are old, but the study of them outside of folklore is fairly new. But the general theory is that Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, Abominable Snowman, etc. may be different names for the same creature, or maybe regional names for a similar kind of anomalous humanoid creature. And the hugely distributed nature of these accounts lends credence to its legend. Many of those recounting seeing Bigfoot were unaware of its many names, unaware that there was a body of folklore around it. They were presenting a story of simple facts accurately reported. Many of these communities were cut off from each other geographically and temporally. The Bigfoot legend or something like it is something that just seems to pop up wherever humans are, basically. So Grendel of Beowulf, the wild man of Pliny, the green man of medieval legend, Wendigo and skinwalkers of Native American lore, etc. Even Theodore Roosevelt apparently had a story of a run-in with a half-human, half-devil, great goblin beast. It seemed as if ape men were everywhere. Once you knew what to look for, they were scattered throughout history, literature and legend. So Sasquatch, for example, can be traced back through centuries of Native American folklore. The word itself thought to be an anglicised version of a word for hairy giant. Yeti are referenced in Tibetan legends several millennia ago. And interestingly, both underwent a kind of media transformation and were retermed as Bigfoot and Abominable Snowman, respectively. Captured the imagination in a new context, perhaps because they were deprived of any spiritual association until much later in the community's history. The re-evaluated Abominable Snowman and Bigfoot were creatures thought to be, at best, kind of dismissive of humans, 
at worst aggressive to humans. They lost any of the association with religions or spiritual ideas or the idea that they may have had some interaction with humans in the past or with our ancestors. It very much reframed them as the the kind of monster that you would expect. And when the legendary yeti, now called, as we say, abominable snowman in the media, had its footprints captured in film by famous mountaineer Eric Shipton in 1951, a flurry of expeditions sprung into action to try to capture or film the beast. Their intent, of course, was to capture it on film for personal gain, for fame, (laughs) to be the one person who got the first film of the Yeti. And in their pursuit, they sought out the fabled scalp and hand of the revered creature, an ancient religious relic of the Buddhist locals, and did what they thought necessary to verify its authenticity, stopping short barely of just stealing the thing. But when the organised large expeditions had failed to turn up much except some goat hair and footprints, attitudes to this kind of scientific plundering changed. And what's more, what was the point of flying across the world to the Himalayan mountains when there were tales of similar creatures traipsing around the Canadian and American woodlands? So BFRO, Bigfoot Research Operation, to this day hosts a comprehensive sightings database on the web covering Canada and the US. And the general framework of an encounter has some hallmarks. So the lone eyewitness suddenly comes upon the path of a huge and strange creature. It is bipedal, tall, about six to nine feet tall, hairy but unmistakably man in some way. So they look towards the witness, step away into the bush and are never to be seen again. And it is this man-like visage that stops many from photographing them or hunters from shooting them. There is something about the creature that makes the witness feel as if they are looking at a man and stop. But the vast majority of those reporting these encounters never see any trace again. And the fact that we have such a wealth of reports says more about there just being more avenues by which to report them than some imagined monetary gain from being a Bigfoot spotter. Like being entangled with UFOs, it rarely, if ever, seems to benefit those who see them. It is a frightening experience that many only recount as a kind of mental release, as a kind of therapy. No trails, routes or gathering points have been established for the Yeti or Sasquatch. There seem to be few, if any, effective ways of tracking them. The creatures are intelligent, elusive evading human detection seemingly out of effort, smart enough, like many predators such as bears, to seldom leave footprints of any real use for their tracking or for tracking their movements. But when the footprints are found, they are larger than anything human-made, hence Bigfoot. And that is pretty much all that is found. No convincing bones, hair samples with any useful DNA, All faecal samples with any useful DNA have been found. They simply leave in their wake more questions, and apparently they smell absolutely awful. So origins for the folklore around such ape men are also a mystery in themselves. 
So it appears and reappears under many guises, including as a campfire tale in the folklore of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. So Apostle David W. Patton claimed to have come across Cain, the original biblical murderer, but it's the description he gives of Cain that links us into the Bigfoot folklore. So it says he wore no clothing, but was covered with hair. His skin was very dark. He said that he had no home, that he was a wanderer in the earth. Now this account deviates from certain key aspects of the modern Bigfoot myth. Bigfoot of modern myth rarely speaks or presents itself to humans. But as we may have implied, this could be a ideological bent that we are applying to these folklore, or it could be implying something about how we view our position in the world. But getting back to Patton's story, the hairy wanderer with dark skin ticks a lot of boxes. There is a question in the Mormon community of whether this story may have been inspired by a real encounter with Bigfoot and that the fearful and threatening creature was rationalised as a symbol of evil, but crucially, one like, but not entirely, human. As folklorist Hector Lee noted, new developments in the Mormon legend cycle, increasingly homogenous with American culture, reflect the motifs and most importantly, lessons of nationally popular urban legends. But this is not the only example of a Mormon mission worker being plagued by the sudden apparition of a huge and hairy human ape. There are numerous in Mormon legend. And this shows a very particular example of this interesting translation of folklore into different applications. So it being homogenized with, in this case, Mormon culture, yet reflecting the important lessons of the urban legend themselves. However, it has to be noted, the repeated descriptions of said being as being dark and progenitor of a cursed race had obvious racist implications, and modern recountings of this myth tend to distance themselves wording of dark-skinned progenitor of a cursed race. So this is an implication and an issue that Bigfoot and Sasquatch, and to a lesser degree, Yeti hunting would have to skirt the line on for a while. So early Bigfoot scholars, like their anthropologist colleagues, could fall prey to a theory known as polygenesis, a popular 19th century belief which held that each human race had a separate biological origin. And this is, to say the least, a troubling concept that many in the field worked to distance themselves from as it opened up species and therefore races to be judged on their superiority over others. Obviously this is not a belief that many hold to this day, but it was a train of thought that early cryptozoologists had to be aware of, and with particular relevance to anomalous primates. Ultimately the Patterson-Gimlin film would bring Bigfoot from the realm of the supernatural, the monstrous and the spiritual, into the area of as Lauren Coleman termed, hominology, the scientific study of Bigfoot and other bipedal primates such as Yeti. If the creature could be captured on film, what was to stop it being studied under scientific conditions? 
Thus, it began to shed its association with evil and danger, with moral lessons, and become closer to the morally ambiguous status of any large predator or wild animal. So whether or not Bigfoot shares any overlap with religion or spirituality, or is simply a biological oddity, the study of anomalous apes, wild men, whatever you want to call them, is a hugely complicated subject and a highly changeable field in its own rights. It should not need saying, but I'll say it anyway. The Bigfoot, Sasquatch and cryptozoology communities are huge and varied. There is not one kind of person who believes in or searches for Bigfoots, and the breadth of the field cannot be summed up easily. The lines are blurry and the focus is constantly shifting. But to simplify, purely so we have an attempt to contain this discussion into some sort of manageable framework, what are the lessons of this popular urban legend? And how can we explain the appearance of Bigfoots? So the origins of said creature may be linked to a small cut-off population of early human-like apes, which somehow survived the extinction of the rest of their species, or be some kind of paranormal or spiritual being or spirit entity, or linked in some way to the concurrent UFO activity of the time. So they rose to prominence in post-war 50s America primarily, an excellent breeding ground for strange and paranormal theories to take hold, and a period of time which I seem to spend a lot of time reading about. As a result, theories around these human-like apes tend to group themselves, though, into a few camps. 1. The belief that ape-men accounts are either a widespread hoax, a misremembering, or some kind of specific psychological condition with unknown cause, i.e. it is all in the mind in some way. 2. The theory that they may represent some missing link in the human evolutionary chain, or an as-to-now unknown human ancestor which has survived in small numbers in isolated conditions as an evolutionary remnant or relic population. 3. Ape men may be the mental impression of some kind of interdimensional being, or spirit entity, appearing in human-like form, perhaps as an instinctual or genetic or evolutionary response. And four, anomalous humanoids may be linked to the UFO and UAP reports that often cluster in the same areas as ape-men sightings. They may be linked, they may be one and the same, or it could be a coincidence. But all of these concepts attempt to deal with certain truths about the study of anomalous humanoids, the wealth of oral reports of eerie similarity, their transcendence of cultural, temporal and geographical boundaries, and the odd lack of verifiable physical evidence, the mystery at the core of the Bigfoot legend. We will be exploring each of these theories in detail in their own episodes so if that sounds good to you please stick around we are going to be here for a while so i hope that sounds good to you
but for now I hope you enjoyed this very brief attempt at establishing some context so we can just dive into some Bigfoot theories and history in a bit more depth. So this is definitely going to be a long series but it's a subject that deserves and demands it and I can't wait. So for now, bye friends.